All right, well, good morning. I want you to, uh, to imagine God told you to go to the Middle East to preach against ISIS because of its wickedness. I don't know if that's the trip we have planned, Jane, or not, but I, I, want, us to, I want us to imagine this. No, it's not. Okay. Um, and, and imagine that since you know that God is very forgiving, he's basically inviting them to repent and be forgiven. Okay? Think about that. Now, I would have several concerns about this myself. Um, first of all, I'm not too fond of traveling overseas. Uh, several years ago, I went on a missions trip with our church uh, to the Middle East. I went with Dr. Bob, uh, Jake Flinkman, and Chad Tierney. And uh, the whole idea of getting on a plane, flying halfway across the world, going to a completely different culture, that's just not my thing. Naturally, I don't like doing those sort of things. And so when I started thinking about this trip, um, you know, I immediately started thinking about all these sort of things like, you know, what if I get sick on the plane? What if I get food poisoning? What if I have to use a squatty while I'm there? And, uh, you know, Jake, on the other hand, felt absolutely no apprehension, if, if you know Jake. Um, he had already been to the location a couple times, but I think the first time he went, um, he had basically made the decision like a couple days before the team left. He ended up taking a plane by himself across the Atlantic Ocean and meeting the team in the middle of the Middle East. And, you know, that was nothing to Jake. Of course, Jake is weird, so I mean, that <laughs> kind of helps explain that. And it's kind of nice to be able to talk about Jake like this because he's not here anymore. But, uh, you know, for me, I wasn't really worried about being in any sort of danger um, when I got there. And, and when I was on the trip in the Middle East, I never once felt unsafe. But if God told me to go to ISIS, you know, getting there would be the least of my concerns. Um, you know, so other than fearing for my life, I would, I would have other concerns. I would, have, I would be thinking about things like, you know, wouldn't preaching to ISIS be pointless if you really stop and think about it? What's going to come out of this other than me getting killed? Are they really going to listen to what I have to say and repent? You know, it just sounds so useless. You know, it's kind of like pre-ordering uh, World Series tickets for the Cubs. It's, what's the point of it? What's the point? Had to get that in there, Dave. Another thing I would be thinking about, isn't this offensive? You know, how could God ever forgive a group of people whose main purpose is to terrorize? You know, they've beheaded innocent journalists. They've used firing squads to execute men, women, and children. They've drowned people. They're militarily forcing their way into town after town. How could a just God offer them forgiveness? Jonah asked some of these very same questions when he was told by God to preach to Nineveh. In fact, when we look at the historical background of Nineveh, comparing them to ISIS is quite fitting. Nineveh was one of the biggest cities in the Assyrian Empire, located in modern-day Iraq. The Assyrians controlled most of the Fertile Crescent region by the time of Jonah, which would have been about the 8th century BC. When describing the cruel and inhumane methods of the Assyrians, one historian said this about them. He said, it is as gory and blood-curdling a history as we know. And he's comparing this to all other civilizations in world history. When Assyrians invaded a city, they did not discriminate between civilians and combatants. After beheading their victims, they would often display them, the, the severed heads on poles, eight heads to a pole, often. They would stretch live prisoners with ropes and skin them alive. The Assyrians were bent on violence and torture much worse than ISIS. 
It's interesting, though, that last year ISIS actually advanced and took over the city of Mosul, which is in Iraq, and it actually sits on the ancient ruins of Nineveh. All right, so as you can imagine, Jonah was put in a very difficult situation. He was told by God to do something that was very dangerous, something very strange, and very offensive. But reaching out to ISIS probably doesn't seem all that relatable to us. So as we go through this story of Jonah today, I want you to think about the following questions and how they apply to your life. Who do you despise or hate? When you really stop and examine your heart, what people in your life do you want to experience bad things? And as you ponder those questions, let's get into the text and figure out exactly what God told Jonah to do. So let's look at chapter 1, verse 1 in Jonah. Get a chance to turn there. It says this, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. Now, a better translation of this might be, Preach to it, because its trouble is of concern to me. Uh, the Hebrew word that is translated as wickedness in the NIV could be translated as trouble, calamity, or disaster. And the Septuagint translated preach against it as preach in it. So we might look at this verse and read it as preach in it or preach to it because its trouble is of concern to me. And this translation may help explain why Jonah interprets the command as including God's offer of restoration to Nineveh, even though God doesn't say this in verse 1. Simply preaching against people because of their wicked, wickedness leaves little room for the possibility of forgiveness and restoration. But preaching to people because you have concern for them sounds more like compassion and opens the door for forgiveness. So either way, we can definitely see how Jonah personally interprets this command if we look ahead to uh, chapter 4, verse 2. If you can flip there, look at chapter 4, verse 2. You just read this. Jonah, at the end of the book, says, uh, says he prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Jonah did not like that God was offering such an insulting people his compassion. And again, keep in mind just how evil Nineveh was and how much of a threat they would have posed to Israel at this time. Uh, in 722 BC, Assyria actually conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, and this would have been only about a generation after Jonah. So we can try to imagine how difficult it would be for us to preach to ISIS, but it would be much harder for people today living in Iraq and Syria who've experienced the terror of ISIS to go ahead and do this. And that's essentially what Jonah is asked to do. So let's look at what Jonah does. We know what he's told to do. What does he do? Uh, look at chap flip back to chapter 1, verse 3. And it says this, But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. God says go to Nineveh, and Jonah tries to go about as far from Nineveh as possible. Some scholars think Tarshish was a location that was as far west as anyone could go at that time, probably in modern-day Spain. What we know for sure is that Jonah was intentionally fleeing from God's call, and this particular calling was centered on the importance of repentance. So this is important for us to consider in our lives. 
we need to say yes to God's call for repentance. Jonah's attempted run to Tarshish is probably not as foolish as it sounds. In fact, it was probably a lot more like what we do all the time. In 2 Kings 14, it tells us that Jonah is a true prophet of God. So Jonah was no idiot when it came to basic theology about God's omnipresence. He knew God was everywhere. He knew he couldn't literally run away from God. But it's likely he thought he could find a place a long way from Israel and an even longer way from Nineveh where he could just drown out God's call to him. If he could just go to a different culture that didn't concern itself with all this God stuff, then he could just completely ignore what God was telling him to do. Are we any different? You know, when God calls us to reach out to somebody, and maybe it's somebody we can't stand, or maybe it's not even somebody we can't stand. We love to make excuses. Or worse yet, we, we pretend that God's really not calling us to do that in the first place. And when God calls us to personally repent, to turn away from a particular sin and turn towards him in humility and brokenness, don't we often run from that calling by simply turning to other places and people and things to occupy our life? You know, when I think back to uh, certain people I went to school with in high school and college, um, I can remember that there was, there was always people that, um, that I just despised. You know, I, I just, I looked at them and everything they did, everything about them bothered me and it, I just felt like all they were concerned with was, was um, just doing evil things all the time and bragging about it. That, that's what they were all about, okay? Uh, I went to a Christian college and there was a lot of people at this college, at, at my college that were like this, uh, people that... Um, they weren't there because they wanted to learn more about God. They weren't there for classes. They were, a lot of them were there because they had a sports scholarship or something. And uh, a lot of the football teams seemed to be like this. I, you know, they just seemed arrogant. They, just, they partied all the time. And, uh, you know, for me, I, I had this uh, judgmental attitude towards them. And I could just go to, you know, a Bible study during college while they partied. Or I could go to church um, while they slept in on Sunday mornings. And I could completely ignore that God longed for their repentance. That was very easy for me, to completely ignore that. I could easily ignore the need for me to repent of my judgmental attitude. You know, I didn't have to board a ship to someplace like Taiwan to run away from God's call. I could just allow my heart to be filled with my own feelings and my own pride, and I could ignore what God was telling me. You know, when you think about it, the real tragedy of silencing God's call to repentance is that we've experienced God's compassion, even though we were lost in evil, and yet God redeemed us while we were still sinners. Yet how often do we deny that certain people could be or should be redeemed? After Jonah attempts to flee from God's calling, God does something uh, pretty big to get his attention. He brings in a storm that engulfs Jonah's getaway ship, Jonah takes the blame for the storm, and then he offers to be thrown overboard to save everybody else in the ship. And then in chapter 1, verse 17, it says this, Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, I've never been in the belly of a fish, but it doesn't sound like it would be very safe, right? Think about it at this point in, in, in Jonah's experience. It's interesting that while he's still in the belly of the fish, he offers a prayer of thanksgiving to God. 
Okay, so let's look at what he says here. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, in my, distress, in my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From the deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. And then skip down to verse 9. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed. I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. Now talk about an interesting salvation story. At the end of Jonah's psalm, he boldly professes salvation comes from the Lord. And then in verse 10 it says, And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. And to me, any salvation story that includes vomit is already very interesting. <laughs> but especially when in Jonah's case, he was the object of the word vomit. That makes it very interesting to me. So Jonah thought he was going to drown, right? I mean, he's out in the ocean. He's conceding that he's going to die. But he gets swallowed by a fish, and he rightfully credits God with saving his life, even though he hasn't reached dry land, and there's no word from God at this point that he will. Okay? He recognizes that he's experienced unexpected grace from God. But as we know, he still has not repented from his disobedience to God or changed his view of Nineveh. So one thing Jonah needed to do was to say yes to seeing the world as God sees it. We need to see the world as God sees it. Jonah is such a valuable book, I think, because it shows us a, a relationship with God is real and sometimes rocky, and things are not always as they seem. Jonah is remembered mostly for his flaws, but his resistance to God's call is not unlike almost every other prophet in the Bible. If you think about the stubborn resistance of Moses and Jeremiah and Abraham, but look at what happens with Jonah. Even after a remarkable series of events where God gets Jonah's attention in a big way, then Jonah praises God, then Jonah is rescued from the belly of the fish, we're going to see in a little bit, Jonah finally obeys God and preaches in Nineveh, and Nineveh unbelievably listens to Jonah. Jonah still argues with God and refuses to see the world as God sees it. Look at uh, chapter 3, verse 1. And this is after he's been vomited out of the fish. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. Now, that's effective preaching right there, right? I mean, you can almost see Jonah looking around going, really? Are you kidding me? You're actually listening? And they did. And in verse 10, it says, When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Now, even after all that Jonah has personally gone through, he still can't come to terms with God's reckless love. In chapter 4, verse 1, it says, But to Jonah this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. 
And as, as I was preparing for this and I was reading that, I was wondering, why does Jonah's reaction sound so familiar? And I thought, oh yeah, I have a five-year-old. Okay, this sounds like a five-year-old. I can't take this, God. You love people. Take my life away. It's better for me to die than to live. Jonah was struggling to come to terms with seeing the world as God sees it. Jonah was sticking to what he knew of God. Okay, now as a prophet, Jonah was probably very familiar with passages in the Old Testament like uh, Numbers. Numbers 15.27 says this, okay? But anyone who sins defiantly, think of Nineveh, whether native-born or foreigner, blasphemes the Lord and must be cut off from the people of Israel. Because they have despised the Lord's word and broken his commands, they must surely be cut off. Their guilt remains on them. Right after Jonah's lifetime, uh, Nahum prophesied against Nineveh because later they returned to their wickedness. And we're going to see here that God doesn't just accept wickedness and evil and just turn the other way. Okay, look, This is what Nahum says about Nineveh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and vents his wrath against his enemies. Jonah knows this about God. But God asked Jonah to see his word in light of a new word from God. And this happens quite a bit in the Bible. You know, Jesus had a habit of providing new and challenging ways of understanding God and his word. He implored his disciples to be like new wineskins, being able to accept new wine, and not to be like old wineskins that were unable to be stretched further. Jesus tells his followers that they have heard it said in the Bible, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But Jesus says, I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Now these principles, I think, were in the Bible all along, but people skimmed over them or misunderstood them. And instead of relying on our fixed beliefs about the world and about the Bible and about God, we must always, always humbly strive to see the world as God sees it. And I think a good example of people not willing to embrace seeing the world as God sees it and instead sticking to their fixed interpretations of the Bible is the American debate over slavery before the Civil War. Uh, evangelical historian Mark Knoll argues that Americans had developed their own method of interpreting the Bible based on the unique formation of American government and a national faith in the common sense of man. This led Americans to often interpret the Bible differently than anyone else in the world at that time. This uniquely American method of interpreting the Bible led to what Noel calls a theological crisis over the issue of slavery. He argues that the defense of the simple, common-sense method of the Bible, of Bible interpretation, posed a drastic problem, since by 1860, a majority of evangelical Protestants, north as well as south, was concluding that the Bible sanctioned the kind of slavery then prevailing in southern states. To this majority, it was self-evident from a simple reading of Scripture that slavery enjoyed, enjoyed a divine sanction of some kind. Now, how could so many Christians interpret the Bible in a way that supported enslaving human beings and treating them as subhuman property? Well, you know, real life is complex and messy and not straightforward. And making things even more challenging is the fact that the Bible doesn't give us all the answers we want and understanding it can often be very difficult. You know, we think about right now, our society is changing at a rapid pace, and it seems as though wickedness is increasingly uh, becoming acceptable and even celebrated. 
And as we seek to live, love, and give like Jesus, we find ourselves in difficult situations. For example, how are we supposed to react to events like Ferguson? How should we deal with the increasing vulgarity on television? How should we deal with homosexuality and transgender issues? What should we do about poverty and a broken criminal justice system? What is the proper Christian response to the government taking away religious liberty? How should we address the breakdown of the family? We need to be careful in how we interpret the Bible. If we stick to certain verses and throw them at people in the middle of these sort of situations, we can often do a lot of harm. Right? You know, somebody comes to us and and is talking about how they're having a difficult time in their marriage, and, and we could say, well, your marriage is falling apart. Well, God hates divorce. Malachi 2.17 or 2.16. Your son is struggling with same-sex attraction. Well, homosexual offenders will not inherit the kingdom of God. First Corinthians. ISIS just beheaded more innocent people. Well, the wicked will perish, so let's just blow them all up. You know, rather than selecting particular proof texts, God wants us to actually engage with him with our concerns about the Bible and the messiness of life. This is something we can actually see with Jonah. He was very real with God. He presents his concerns to God, and he even questions God. That wasn't the problem. In fact, that's exactly what God wants us to do. The problem with Jonah was that he needed to learn a tough lesson that life is complex and that God's love and justice is not black and white. Here's what was com complex about Jonah's situation. He looked at scripture and he dwelled on qualities of God's character like how much God detests foreign idols, violence, pride, and oppression. Then Jonah took his own view of the Ninevites, a people bent on idol worship and violence and pride and oppression, and he came to the logical conclusion that they simply deserve God's wrath. End of story. But God had the nerve to look at the situation differently. Yes, God detests those things, and nobody takes sin more seriously than God himself. But God sees the Ninevites in all their evil, and what does he do about it? Unload his wrath against them and kill every man, woman, and child? No, we see at the end of Jonah that God relents from sending calamity because he has pity on them. Look at chapter 4, verse 11, the end of Jonah. God says, and should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh? Uh, the ESV translates this, should I not pity Nineveh? In which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and also many animals. Now this is the same God who pronounces all kinds of judgment on pagan nations and even Israel all throughout the Old Testament. But as Jesus taught and displayed, God doesn't just love sometimes and some people, God is love. He loves perfectly, and real love is, is the desire for the well-being of another. And I like what James Bryan Smith says. He says, wrath is not God's fit of rage, which is how I think we often think, look, look at it. It is his consistent opposition to sin and evil. His wrath is not reckless and irrational, but a mindful, objective, rational response of love. In the book of Jonah, we see that God's mindful, rational response of love leads him to have compassion on a people who could not tell their right hand from their left. You know, I think God had pity for a baby boy who was born in Nineveh 
And from the time he learned to walk and talk and relate to other people, he was engrossed in a completely pagan culture that embraced nothing but hate, violence, and destruction. This boy grows up not having any access to God's word or any godly parenting or, or guidance. He becomes a typical man in Nineveh who engages in unconscionable acts of violence. Does this kind of behavior elicit God's wrath throughout the Bible? Yes. But God's wrath is a part of God's love. And God is slow to anger and abounding in love. And if we don't see the world as God sees it and put ourselves in other people's shoes and have true compassion for people who are held hostage by sin and instead we just stick to our prejudices and judgmental attitudes, we can't live, love, and give like Jesus. Because as Christians, we've got to always remember what Paul tells us about ourselves. In the book of Romans, after Paul describes how depraved the pagans are, he goes on to say that all of humanity is in the same boat. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's only through God's grace and redemption through Jesus that we can be saved. Paul also warns us against judging the world, a.k.a. non-Christians. Listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians 5. Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and the swindlers or the idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. Then Paul goes on to say this, What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. So Jonah's job was not to judge the Ninevites. Jonah's job and our job is to love people, including our enemies. So we need to say yes to loving our enemies. I think we've all heard that, but that's an incredibly hard thing to do. So when you confront issues and people and sin, are you going to let your prejudices prevent you from reaching out to someone and telling them the go about the gospel and showing them God's love? Are you going to stay in a holding pattern when it comes to your beliefs on God and the Bible and how you view others, even if this is preventing you from having compassion and love for certain people? I've got a, a neighbor that lives uh, two houses down from me. And uh, they have several dogs that they will every day let out of their house to go into everybody else's yard and go poop in everybody else's yard. Every day. They open the door, the dogs go. They close the door. Dogs come in my yard. They go poop. And I just see this as being incredibly uh, rude and, you know, I find myself just scratching my head. How, how can people do this? And then that's just one thing. There's other, thing that, that, other things that this family does. That it, it just bothers me. You know, they drive very fast down our street. We have a lot of kids on our street. Every one of them drives incredibly fast. Now, what I find myself doing, I've never talked with these people. You know, they've never expressed any interest in talking to us. I've never expressed any interest in talking with them. And, and what I do... As, as I try to rationalize this as a Christian, um, I get mad, right? 
And what I do is I don't let myself dwell on how much I dislike them. Okay? I don't let myself dwell on how much I like them because that would be wrong. Right? Can't do that. So just don't dwell on how much you don't like these people. Or I stop myself from planning and carrying out my righteous indignation and confronting them in a fit of rage, you know, with like a, a bag full of, of their dog poop or something, which I've thought about doing many times. I stop myself from planning that and carrying it out because that would be wrong. So what do I do? I just write them off. I don't think of them as much as I can. That's my response. Just don't think of them. I ignore the Holy Spirit telling me to love them as he loves them, to go out of my way to establish a relationship with them, and I go on with my life. In our last elders meeting, um, we made a commitment to pray every day for the Holy Spirit to fill us and guide us um, so that wherever God is moving, we, we can be attentive to that and follow. And uh, not long after I started praying this, I was walking past my neighbor's yard, and uh, he was out doing some, some yard work. And normally I would just, you know, walk by and um, not say anything. But I, I felt a quick conviction from the Holy Spirit. This wasn't planned. I, just, I felt it just like that. And I looked up at him. We made eye contact. And I said, hi. And you know what he did? He said, hi. And, you know, that was... I'm hoping the beginning of me being able to actually approach him and start a relationship um, because I never even thought of doing that before. And I think a lot of you can relate to this. Um, one commentator said this about the book of Jonah. The prophetic good news of Jonah is found in learning how God thinks. And we can see in Jonah perhaps more than any other Old Testament book that God thinks differently than we do. And this is truly good news. You know, thank God that he thinks and acts through his unconditional love that led him to not write off Nineveh and not write off Jonah and not write off you and me. And I'm going to close with, with this verse from 2 Peter. Uh, 2 Peter 3.9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. As a teacher, I love that learning is an ongoing endeavor. It never ends. I love that we can, as a church, learn more every day about how God thinks and about who God is. And as we try to rely on the Holy Spirit, uh, we can work together as a church to live love and give like Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you did not write us off. Thank you that you think differently than we often do. But thank you also that you have sent your Holy Spirit to live in us so that we can be new people in Christ. We can think like you. We can act like you. Uh, please help us to not ignore your call for repentance. Please help us to see the world as you see it and to love all people. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.